Okay, we're going to tackle. Maybe we're going to tangle tonight with Hebrews 6. Uh, clearly one of the most uh, challenging passages in the Bible. Certainly the passage of Scripture that I most common have, uh, most often have conversations with people regarding um, someone makes an appointment to come in to talk to me and they are struggling with something. They come in, they have their Bible in their hand. Um, I'm pretty certain we're going to go to Hebrews 6. And uh, so they talk for a few minutes. I said, let me guess. Hebrews 6 has got you stumped. Yes, it does. And so um, it's a passage of Scripture that I've spent a lot of time with over the years. And I'm sure we'll continue to. My goal tonight is to show you, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, uh, the clarity with which this passage is uh, written and exactly what it uh, says. And by the conclusion of this evening, hopefully, that will be utterly and completely evident to us all. <clears throat> so let's read Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse Four. The scripture says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now, since the beginning of time, and certainly since the beginning of Christianity, there's always been those who struggle with whether or not a born-again believer in Jesus can lose or forfeit their salvation. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this. Even if there were not people who were propagating this agenda, it would be an issue because it's an issue for most people just naturally. The enemy is going to attack you and he's going to try to condemn you. And so the voice in your head is going to do enough damage uh, on its own. But beyond that, there's all sorts of various, uh, you know, fragments of Christianity that will misuse the scripture to promote their agenda. So the questions we need to ask ourselves, I mean, I could talk for 15 or 20 minutes about why that is, but I think that's fairly obvious, that you could misuse a doctrine like salvation and the security of a believer to manipulate people into doing what you want them to do and remaining, I mean, you know, fear is a... Uh, is a, is a strong weapon and in the wrong hands can, can cause all sorts of problems. And so there's lots of people that sit in lots of churches where fear is used as a tactic to uh, make people obedient. It's a terrible situation, but it's a reality. And there's all sorts of other reasons why this struggle exists. 
So here's the questions we need to ask ourselves. First of all, can a person who has been justified, which means to be declared not guilty, justified by faith in Jesus Christ, can they somehow experience de-justification? Can a person move from being declared not guilty to now being guilty? And you see, you think to yourself, well, maybe because that could happen in our, uh, you know, in our understanding. Uh, for example, in our legal context, that could happen because you could be declared not guilty by one court. It could be appealed to a higher court and there could be changed and so on and so forth. The problem here is that the, you have to ask yourself, who is the person who is declaring the saint justified? And is there an authority above that authority that can override that declaration? And the obvious answer to that is, well, of course there's not. There's no, there's no one who can overrule the high court of the universe. And so once a person is declared justified, there's not de-justification. Or how about can a person who has been fully forgiven of their sins do something that would lead God to once again regard them as guilty and thus liable to eternal punishment. Again, you just have to think, well, is God relegated to time? Does God exist in time as we understand time? And the answer to that would be, well, of course He doesn't. You couldn't read the Bible for five minutes and hold to that conclusion. So therefore, when God forgives sin... An all-knowing God already understands all the sin that's in your future that you haven't even gotten to. So if God forgives sin, when God does something, He doesn't do it in the framework of time. He does it in the framework in which He exists, which is above and beyond time. So when a person is forgiven, they're forgiven of their sin, past, present, and future, because God's not where we are. So clearly, there would be a problem, although there are a lot of people who teach that. Or what about the doctrine of, of adoption? Can a person or a true child of God be cast out of the divine family? So can, the question is, can you be unadopted? Can the... Can the fact that at salvation you're grafted into the family of God, you're a co-heir with Christ, can that be undone? Can you be, can you be cast out of God's family? Can a spiritual son or daughter lose their status, be ostracized from the family of faith? Can someone who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus be yet somehow brought back or fall back into bondage whereby they go from being a slave to sin, Romans says, to then becoming a slave to righteousness and then reversing back to a slave to sin? Well... The first thing we need to do is just clarify some things. You, if you don't build a firm foundation, then whatever you put on top of it is going to topple down around you. So, what eternal salvation does not mean. 
Well, it doesn't mean that you can't sin. You see, you have to be crystal clear about that. That there's nothing about eternal salvation. There's nothing about the, the security of the believer that supposes that they are now saved and no longer subject to sin. No, that's not the case. It also does not mean that true Christians can't backslide, to use a term that has uh, been adopted into the church vernacular. I don't exactly even know what, you know, the problem with a term like backslide is that everyone has their own interpretation of what that means. And really, it's, it's not really a good term, but I don't have another term to use because that's the term we use. Can you, can you drift away for a while? Can you go through a, a, a season where you are, we, we say things like, out of the will of God? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. What it does mean, what eternal salvation does mean, is that God will graciously preserve in faith and protect so that they don't fully and finally turn away from him in unbelief. You see, God promises that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. So, you could, if God only said he'll never leave us, well, then we'd have a problem. Or if he said that he would not forsake us, but he didn't say anything about leaving us, we'd have a problem. But when he says he'll never leave us or forsake us, then what happens is we now know that wherever we go and whatever we do, he will be with us. And the fact that he won't forsake us means that he won't turn his back on us. He won't let go of us, so to speak. So, we won't be able to finally, fully and finally turn away from him in unbelief. So, what must we do in order to understand rightly what Scripture is saying? What we need to do is resist the temptation to make the Bible fit into our experiences. The reason that Hebrews 6 is a problem is not because the passage itself is a problem. Yes, there's lots of places in Scripture that are challenging, and this being one of them. But the reason that this causes so many people so much trouble is because what we're doing is trying to make the Bible fit into our experience. What happens is, is that we, over time, in the Bible Belt in particular develop a theology of salvation based on what? What is, the, what is the greatest influencer of most people's theological understanding of salvation is other people's stories, testimonies, which are wonderful and we love testimonies here. And the Bible says that we should embrace testimonies because the blood of the Lamb and the power of our testimony overcomes the evil one. The problem is, is that the assumption is because I'm telling you my story that I fully understand what I'm talking about as I'm telling it. And that's not nearly always the case. 
right? So what happens is you've heard hundreds of stories over the course of your Christian walk, and those stories vary in all sorts of different ways, and they've slowly began to mold and shape your understanding. And so when someone tells a story of something that happened to them and the, their salvation experience, and it's different from something that you understood before, then you sort of have to morph your understanding into encompass that, because rarely are we listening to someone's story saying, I don't think that's the way that happened. I'm not telling you that I'm the one in the room always thinking, I don't think that's the way that happened. But I am. Because that's usually not the way that happened. It's just the way you understand it. But biblically speaking, now I'm not saying that I usually don't disagree with the fact of whether or not a person's safe. Why would I? I'm not the judge of a person's soul. It's just the process. I'm listening closely, and a lot of times I'm thinking, I don't think you got saved when you think you got saved. I think you got saved at a different place. A lot of times. A lot of times. Let me give you a good way of understanding this. We're here tonight together in church learning the Word of God. Meanwhile, in our own community, scattered from basically one end of the coast to the other, there are literally thousands of people right now that are inside casinos that are giving their money away, and they believe... That because someone has gone in there and won a bunch of money, they, they've allowed that to shape their understanding. Therefore, they keep going. And so whatever you choose to allow to shape your understanding, look at the power that that has. So you see, on one hand, you have a person like me whom you could not pay to go there. Because I am smart enough to know that there's a $100 million complex and someone has to pay for that $100 million complex and the person who's going to pay for that $100 million complex are all the saps that are going in there thinking they're going to win money. But on the other hand, you have all these people who would vehemently and obviously completely disagree with that because they're there right now. And 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there are people there, blue-collar, hardworking people who need their money and are spending it there because they believe that because people have won, they can or will win. Now... The, the reason I bring that up to you is because that's exactly what happens with a theology of salvation. Because you know someone who got saved this way or whose life went this way, so therefore you adjusted your understanding of salvation because this person says that this is how this went down in their life. That, to me, is a horrible mistake. The only way that I'm going to adjust my understanding of salvation is going to be based on what does God say about salvation, not what anybody's story is. But that's not how it goes. And so what you have is you have 
the, the vast majority of people are sort of, I mean, you know, Satan is shrewd and he's going to work in the lanes in which he has to work in. He's going to work in the most effective fields. He's going to sow doubt and condemnation in the most effective places that he, he can. And so there's, there's very few people that I love and minister to who share my experience of going from utterly and completely unchurched and lost to utterly and completely redeemed and saved just from black to white. No, but when you grow up going to church, when you grow up learning the Bible, when you grow up, it's very easy for things to get foggy and, you, and you're, you're constantly being inundated by people's stories and by all these things. And so what happens is we start subtly trying to fit the Bible into experience. That is a disaster. So maybe we hear the story about the guy or the young lady or the man or the woman. It's even, it gets, the closer the person comes to you, the more difficult it gets. The, the closer in proximity they are, the, the, if, if they're related to you, if they're your child, it's very hard to see objectively what's going on in their life because you love them. And of course you do. And of course we should understand that. But we need to be careful. So, so the, the teenage girl who grows up in the youth group and goes to youth camp and makes a profession of faith and gets baptized and carries her Bible to public high school and is involved in the praise band all through uh, her high school years and is a, is a wonderful, fruitful, beloved member of, of the congregation and then goes off to college at which time she uh, begins to be influenced by secularism and then rejects uh, God over those college years, doesn't go to church and, and begins to think like a, 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 an atheist, an unbeliever, and even becomes early on in the, in the through her 20s, she is combative against those who would bring up Christianity. It's a sore subject for her. She rejects any conversations about that and, and doesn't want anything to do with it, refuses to have those conversations with her family. And so from the time she, she graduates high school at 18, she is away from the Lord completely and utterly, and then somewhere around age 30, she wanders back into the church, wounded, beat up, and scarred, divorced twice over, uh, you know, with an alcohol problem, all sorts of uh, consequences of life and, and decisions, and it's just a train wreck. And what happens next is going to be predicated on what? 
probably the church in which she wanders into. There are going to be some churches that she wanders into where she's immediately going to be counseled. You need to repent. You need to be saved. You need to be baptized. Clearly, your life shows no evidence of salvation. Look at the disaster you've made of everything. You've walked away from God for over a decade. There's going to be other churches that she could walk into, and they're going to say, well, you made a profession of faith, and you followed the Lord and believers' baptism, so you are a Christian, but because you have... Uh, been away from God, out of God's will, because you've chosen to uh, reject God for this season of time and made all these choices, you've, you've forfeited many of the blessings in the kingdom of God. And there's going to be some churches that she walks into and they're going to say, well, you made a profession of faith. You follow the Lord and believers' baptism. So, yes, it's been difficult and trying over the past decade plus, but you're saved. Now, my question for you is, who's right? You don't know. You don't know, and nor do I. And what we need is time. What you need is, is some, some space. And what we need is for God to work that out. Because a person is charged by the Scripture to work out. To wrestle out their salvation. Isn't that right? Yes. And so it's complicated. How long can a person who's made a profession of faith, how long can a person be away from God and still be saved? What's the length of time? Now, I know because I have this conversation all the time. The answer in most people's head is, if it's my spouse or my son or my mom or my dad, it's unlimited. Because I'll do anything I can to just deny the reality of what's in front of me and convince myself that they're fine and they're going to, if something happens to them, they're going to go to heaven. But is that true? Hmm. No takers? Well, here's what's true. Jesus has a different way of looking at regeneration. He has a different way of looking at salvation than cultural Christianity. In John chapter 2, the, uh, we'll use the book of John because it's be the most familiar of the gospel since we just talked through it a year ago. John chapter 2, this will ring bells in your head. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at Passover during the feast, many believed, you should circle that, in his name when they saw the signs which he did, but 
Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now, they believed. It's right there. Let's take it a step further. Let's go to John chapter 6 where we're going to ramp it up. We're going to leave the word believe and we're going to push forward. The Bible says in John chapter 6, Therefore many of his, circle the word, disciples. Now we've graduated from believe. Now we're to disciples. Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. What was the saying? He said, If you're going to follow me, you're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's teaching on discipleship, meaning not that we're going to be cannibals, but obviously that following Jesus would be would be would be in a, our scale of priorities like food and water, nourishment and sustenance that he would be the one that we leaned upon to for survival. So these disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? From that time on, many of his circle the word disciples went back and walked with him no more. Now, did Jesus chase after them? When he encountered the rich young ruler, the, the dream evangelism moment. Young man walks up, says, hey, pastor, hey, Christian, how can I, how can I be a, a believer like you? How can, I, how can I know that when I die, I can go to heaven? Jesus says, well, keep the law. He responds, I've done that since my youth. Jesus says, well, then sell all you have and give it to the poor. He turns and walks away sorrowful. Jesus doesn't say another word. He doesn't go after. He doesn't say, hey, hey, come back. Let's, let's talk some more. Hey, are you available tomorrow? We can, we can have this again. Uh, we can. No, he doesn't do any of that. He lets him walk away. Now, granted, we're not Jesus because we don't know a person's heart. Jesus does. He knows things we'll never know. So he knows whether or not a person is ever going to turn or respond, and so he acts accordingly. But the point is simply that clearly God is showing us we must understand that there are different levels of discipleship and different quantities or qualities of commitment. Some that are genuine. They're genuinely the fruit of saving faith and others that are not. Now, is this not true in every arena of life? Well, of course it is. Anything, you can just think of anything in any arena of life and where a group of people are involved in it and there's going to be a multitude of degrees of commitment to that thing. Am I right? Well, of course so when someone says to me, you know, if I'm somewhere out of town or something and someone says to me, which I really don't understand, but people still do anyway, they'll, say to, they'll ask me questions like, well, pastor, how many members does your church have? Now, that's a dumb question. How many members does your church have? Most churches have five times the amount the FBI can't find their members. So, 
What does that even mean? But okay, we'll run with it. I always say, I have no idea. And they just look at me like, that's my way of kindly saying, shut up, I don't want to have that conversation. So are we to believe? Now, let's say there's a church of whatever, 200 members. Now, all 200 people have done jumped through the same hoop of membership, so they're all equally members. But is anybody in any arena of, of understanding of anything thinking that all 200 people are equally committed to the, the church and, and functioning as a healthy member of that church? Well, of course not. Because the 80% of the people that are riding on the coattails of the 20% that are doing all the work, clearly it's not equal. But they're all equally members, right? And that's true of anything. That's true of all relationships. Listen, every sports team you've ever played on. Well, are you on the team? Yes. Well, now, but the guy who's on the team who never gets on the, off the bench is still on the team like the guy who never comes off the field. Right? Well, yes. And so the Bible is just simply portraying things the way that they are. Now, if the word disciple bothers you, if you're okay with the fact that many believe but Jesus didn't commit himself to them, you're okay with that, but when the disciples turn and follow him no more, that's a problem. It ought not because what is a disciple? It is a follower. Now, is there not a multitude of degrees of fellowship? Have you ever played a, a, a very sophisticated game called Simon Says? Because if you have, then you understand that when you play Simon Says, it's not always clear what's happening. So what you do is you say, Simon Says, do this, and you start doing it, and you know the drill. But what happens is if you have a bunch of people following you, what, there, there's the one person that, you know, you're tapping your head and shaking your leg, and, you know, they're rubbing their stomach and licking their nose. And you go, you're out. But there's two or three other people in the crowd that are halfway doing what you're doing. And they halfway stop when you stop, Right? And so are they out? Are they in? Is it following? Is it not following? Well, it's kind of a gray area. It's the same thing. It's like Simon says. I mean, if Jesus is going this way and you're going that way, well, then I think we could all agree that's not following. But if Jesus is going this way and you're going that way, well, you're kind of following you're moving in the same general direction that Jesus is going right and there's all those degrees down to the person who's following right behind Jesus going everywhere that he goes and so it's just an issue of fellowship consider John chapter 8 we'll just keep progressing through John for a moment John chapter 8 look at the verse I put on your verses on your handout Verse 31, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, circle, believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. There's a very famous verse that we love. 
Now, if you go to verse 44, Jesus says, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. The problem is, is that Jesus is speaking to the very same people in both verses. When you look at John chapter 8, it is a long conversation with the same group of people. So Jesus says on one hand to the same people, if you abide in my word, you'll be my disciples indeed. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then he says to the same people, you know your father's the devil. And the things you want to do are the things he wants you to do. Same crowd, same conversation. So the Bible clearly has no problem speaking of people who had believed in Jesus and had followed for a time, who were not born again by their failure to abide in His Word, demonstrating that their faith was spurious or phony and superficial and that they were not truly His disciples. You see, think about what Jesus said. He didn't say, if you believe in my word, you're my disciples indeed. He didn't say that. He didn't say, if you agree with my word, you're my disciples. He used a term that cannot be in any understanding of the term. Nobody who can speak English would use the term abide as a, as a momentary non-continuous action. Abide. Continue. Exist in. Let's consider Matthew chapter 13. I didn't put this on your handout, but you should think for a moment about the parable of the soils. So, in the parable Jesus teaches, there is a sower of a seed. There's one sower and one seed. He equally distributes seed across four different types of soil, none of which can be discerned simply by looking externally. The seed lands on the four different types of soil, and you know the story. The first type of soil is immediately rejected. The last type of soil immediately receives and grows and produces a hundredfold. The question is, what happens in the middle? What happens to the middle two soils? Are they not initially received with joy and even sprout up? They look for all intents and purposes as if they're authentic and genuine and real. And yet the Bible says they last only for a time and they fizzle away. So initially, can you tell the difference between soil number three and soil number four? No, you cannot. What do you have to do? Wait. You have to wait. You have to be patient. Let 
Lots of people hear the gospel. Lots of people believe the gospel. And lots of people who do both of those things do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. What about Judas Iscariot? You remember a few years ago, I preached a sermon called The, the Tale of the Tape. Meaning, tape measure, the, the proximity. And I spent the entire sermon on Sunday morning talking about this proximity theology whereby people convince themselves that either they are born again or that people they care about are born again because they've been in close proximity to spiritual things or spiritual people or to God or Jesus or whatever the case may be. And I use the case of Judas, who was indiscernible from all the other apostles. That at the Last Supper, Jesus said, one of you has betrayed me. And not one person said, I knew Judas was a traitor. No one. In fact, they said, is it I, Lord? No one knew one thing about Judas. He existed among them for three years, day and night. Slept with them, ate at the campfire with them, walked on the road with them, listened to the teaching with them. He spent every, he experienced every healing, every miracle. He was there every step of the way. No one could tell the difference. And three years in, he sells out the Son of God. And the proof that our theology with regards to salvation is so warped by our experience that every single time I talk about Judas, someone comes up to me or they email me and says, well, I believe that Judas went to heaven. And you would be utterly and completely blind because he did not. But the thing is, is that he comes rushing in, remorseful and sad because of what he's done and cast the, the, the silver pieces back on the floor and is heartbroken and sorrowful. And so because we want to believe things, we say, well, clearly, he's sorry for what he did and he regrets what he did and he's as genuine as a person could be. And no, no. He is the son of perdition. So all of these things should make us think, okay? So there's our foundation. I'm just trying to get you to think. Now we'll look at this text and it'll be clear as a bell. That's what I hope. How can we know who Hebrews 4 through 6 is referring to? How can we know that? I mean, it sounds like a pretty compelling uh, argument that oh, something is going on and these people have... 
they, they appear to be believers the way that so many times we understand believing. But in light of all that we've said, let's, let's think about it with fresh eyes. So let's do this first. Let's consider, first of all, the context. That would be the simplest first place I would always start. Whenever you get somewhere in Scripture and go, uh-oh, there's a problem. I don't understand this. This seems to be saying something that I'm not sure about or that doesn't seem right. Just take a deep breath and just look at the context. Just peruse what is preceding and what is following. Now, what was the entire conversation that Pastor Matt led you through from the previous section of Hebrews? The verses that immediately precede this were entirely about what? Immature believers. Remember the conversation about milk and not being able to eat meat. Are you recalling that? So we, we went from an, a conversation about immature believers into a conversation where it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift and shared of the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. And what follows that statement. Look at verse 7 and 8 in your handout. Verse 7 says, For land that has drunk the rain, now over the phrase drunk the rain, in parentheses you should write tasting and partaking. It will help you. For the land that has drunk the rain or tasted or partaken of the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Okay? But if it bears thorns and thistles, which I would put over that in parentheses, falls away. So if it bears thorns or thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So now, even if you didn't have any idea what Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 was talking about, you would at least be able to say, now, that was a strange twist. Like one minute we're talking about it's impossible to restore them again to repentance, and then boom, we go to rain and land. Like what just happened? So clearly these are connecting something. So why are we having a conversation about different kinds of land and rain, which ought to be very obvious considering the conversation we just had for 20 minutes, especially with regards to the parable of the soils. So rain, the same rain falls on many types of ground. And externally, no one can tell what type of ground it is. The only way of knowing is you have to let the rain fall on it and see what it 
produces. You don't know what kind of vegetation will appear or not appear simply by looking at it. So what the, the picture that's being drawn for us here is one that of two different kinds of ground. They're completely different. One responds to the rain, the spiritual blessings and opportunities, by producing a bountiful vegetation, while the other is barren, lifeless, and thus condemned. Now, notice how specific the language is. This rain, the land that drinks from the rain, that often falls on it, it produces a crop. It doesn't say it just produces a crop. What does it say? It produces a very specific crop, a very intentional crop. It is a crop that is useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. Where the other land, described in verse 8, bears thorns and thistles, which are clearly not useful to anyone for any reason, is worthless and near being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So likewise... There are people who hear the gospel and respond with saving faith that brings forth life. They hear the gospel, the rain falls on the land of their heart. They receive it and a crop is produced or fruit begins to be bore from that experience that is useful to the one who cultivated it. Who cultivated it? Who cultivated your heart? Yeah, you didn't. I didn't. So when a person is genuinely converted, they become useful to the one who cultivates. So you got people who hear and respond. But there are others who sit in church and hear the truth and are blessed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but eventually turn their back on it all and are like a field that gets rain but never yields vegetation and thus comes into judgment. Is that something that is immediately visible? No, it takes time. Last week, one of the things Pastor Matt said is that he said, truth heard but not internalized or maintained will be lost to the hearer. And when he said that, I thought, that'll be helpful next week. You see, has it ever struck you that, I mean, we've no doubt had this conversation multitudes of times before, but we should continue to have it, that... I don't think a day goes by. There's never been a Sunday that you can recall where at some point in the Sunday, I prayed specifically that God would give us ears to hear. And yet, far as I know, every person in attendance has ears. You have ears. Some work better than others. We'll go with that. But you have them. But I'm not asking for ears that, that operate audibly. I'm asking for ears that operate spiritually. Because there is a difference between hearing audibly and hearing spiritually. 
And so my request before God is always that we would hear spiritually. Because listen, we can just turn up the volume and I can yell and scream and everybody's going to hear audibly. But that's not what we're after because that will not in and of itself convert the heart. It is necessary in the process, but in and of itself it will not convert the heart. It's what happens when it is heard. It's interesting that I didn't have time to get into this on your handout, but if you go to the very next verse, which will be next week, which is Hebrews 6, 9. So after the discussion of the, the two responses of the land that received the rain, I'll read it to you. Verse 9 then says, Though we speak in this way, the writer of Hebrews saying, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, remember the context, the, the book is written to this small church that's facing persecution. So though we speak in this way, we've just talked about it's impossible to restore those who've been Okay, then it's two kinds of land, rain's falling, but one produces a crop useful, the other one is barren or thorns and thistles. And then, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we, we who? We, the Scripture writing, feel sure of better things, better things, comma, things that belong to salvation so the point is is that I don't know how you could possibly read verse 7 8 and 9 and come to the conclusion that verses 4 through 6 were talking about people who were saved and lost their salvation because the very next conversation is there are better things regarding you things with regards to salvation meaning what I just said does not regard towards salvation, right? They're better things. I mean, it is really crystal clear. If we disconnect ourselves from our casino mentality. Well, I know someone who grew up in church and got saved and then wandered in the wilderness for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years and came back and, and you know, has flourished in church and everything's great. And therefore, I've discerned or come to the conclusion that that must be a possible scenario. Therefore, maybe little Johnny that I love so much is I'm just going to bury my head in the sand and say, you know what, I think they're saved. Even though there's no fruit bearing whatsoever, they did make a profession in Sunday school when they were in the third grade. To which I would say, take a nickel, go down, put it in, and pull the thing. What are we basing our understanding on? Someone's story? Now, I'm not negating the fact that they were at one time in church and made some sort of, had some sort of an experience and then were away for a long time and then came back. And now I'm not debating whether or not today they are a born again believer in Jesus Christ. My question for you is. How are we coming to the conclusion that when that happened, when that became a reality, was all the way back when we went through this formality? Where are you getting that in the Scripture? What really happened was, 
Little Johnny made a profession at some point or went to youth camp or got baptized or signed a card or did whatever they did. And all sorts of things happened. And then at some point in the future, guess what happened? They began to do what? Abide in my word. That's what happened. And then you'll be my disciple indeed. We just have to ask ourselves, why do I believe the things I believe? Where did I get these ideas? So we consider the context. Let's consider the phrases. Each phrase. Because listen, nobody, nobody wants you to be more secure in your salvation than God. And you know who's second on that list? Me. Because I know that if you're not secure in your salvation, nothing is going to happen in your life spiritually until that's resolved. You are in spiritual quicksand. You can hear 10,000 sermons. They're going to bounce off you because you don't know what applies to you and what doesn't. You can wake up every morning and force yourself to read the Bible. It's not, and you're going to be bouncing off. You don't know what applies to you and what doesn't. You're going to be going a ring around the rosy for... For days, it's going to turn into months, it's going to turn into years, it's going to turn into decades. No, we got to resolve that. But no one wants that resolved more than God. And as your shepherd, I absolutely, positively don't want to see you struggle with that. So I'm going to do everything in my power to walk with you through that and have that conversation. But let's just think about these phrases in Hebrews chapter 6, okay? These are the way... The, the, the different phrases that are used to describe these people. All right, let's talk about it. First of all, number one. They have once been enlightened. That means to hear the gospel, to learn or to understand. Okay? They've once been enlightened. They've heard, they've believed, or they've understood. Now, Have true Christians been enlightened? Okay. Let's go back to VBS. Uh, Can a person become a Christian if they don't hear? Doesn't Paul say, well, how can a man believe he doesn't hear? So if you are a true Christian, you must be enlightened. So the answer to that would be yes. Yes, all true Christians have been enlightened. But not all who have been enlightened are saved. You see, the problem is is that we jump from one extreme to the other. We say, well, I'm a Christian, and so I was enlightened, therefore... When I read Hebrews chapter 6 and it says these people were enlightened, they must be Christians, which is, how did we get that leap? I just went through painstakingly verse after verse after verse to show you time and time again of people who believed, people who heard, and rejected, right? So don't get tangled up with they were once enlightened. No problem. The Holy Spirit can enlighten someone 
drawing them unto himself. But is the Holy Spirit going to force someone? Capture someone? Are you going to be taken against your will? No. Your will's going to change. You're going to change. You see, merely understanding Christian doctrines does not prove one to be saved. Listen, there's, the world is filled with really smart people. I mean, they're dumb, but they're smart. You know the difference. You know the people that are super smart but don't have any, we call it common sense or street smarts. You know. You're like, really? So you make straight A's? You got three PhDs and you don't know that? Because it's, it's not in all the, the giant textbooks that they love to swim in or whatever the case may be. Listen, understanding doctrine, demons understand doctrine. Okay? That doesn't make you saved. So, once being in, enlightened, no problem. All Christians are enlightened, but not all people who are enlightened are Christians. Very simple. Secondly, they have tasted the heavenly gift and the goodness of the Word of God and even the powers of the age to come. Hmm. Tasted the heavenly gift, the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come. Verse 5, Hebrews 6. Did these people have a genuine spiritual experience? Now listen, just read it. They tasted the heavenly gift, the goodness of the Word of God, and even the powers of the age to come. Did they have a genuine spiritual experience? And the answer is, well, yes. But not all people who have a genuine spiritual experience are saved. But all people who are saved had a genuine spiritual experience. Right? I mean, it's just logic 101. So let's talk about people who have genuine spiritual experiences. Consider most of the people, the vast majority of people. If we were to gather up on this stage, which we couldn't fit them, but let's just suppose hypothetically we could. We gathered up on this stage through the choir loft all up here. We crammed this whole entire platform full of all the people that Jesus healed in his earthly ministry. All the people he cast out demons. All the people he raised from the dead. All the people who were lame that now walk. All the people who were blind that can now see. All the people that he healed. How many of those people were genuinely converted? The vast majority of people that Jesus healed had a genuine experience and rejected him. He went into whole, read the book of Mark, he went into whole towns and healed every single person of every single disease in the entire town. Have you ever read anything in the Bible about the, the Christian town where everybody got saved? No. You know why? Because it doesn't exist. You know why? Because a spiritual experience does not save you. But because we had a spiritual experience that was part of our salvation, we jumped to the conclusion that because someone has a spiritual experience that they're saved. I can't say it any faster than that. That's all I got. 
What about Matthew chapter 7? It's in your handout. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? My question is, did these people have a spiritual experience? The answer is yes. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me. You're a worker of lawlessness. So is a spiritual experience grounds for salvation? No, it is not. It never has been. It never will be. The Bible could not be any clearer. What about the third group of statements? The writer of Hebrews says they shared in the Holy Spirit. Boy, that one throws people for a loop. But pastor, they shared in the Holy Spirit. I mean, clearly, if you share in the Holy Spirit, you're saved. And now they, it's impossible for them to be brought back? Hmm. They shared in the Holy Spirit. Where else in Scripture do you recall the word shared being used with regards to the Holy Spirit? There's sharing meals. There's sharing information. There's sharing a lot of things. But there's no other sharing. There's no sharing. No. So why does the author not use the terminology that we do have in Scripture like that they were filled with the Holy Spirit or that they were baptized in the Spirit or they were indwelt by the Spirit. You know why? Because they weren't. They shared in it. They weren't indwelt by Him. They shared in Him. They weren't baptized in Him. They shared in Him. They weren't filled with Him. They shared in Him. Now, if that's still causing you a problem, then think of it this way. Is it not inconceivable that a person could live in close proximity to the community of genuine Christians and not share or partake in the works of the Holy Spirit? Hmm? It's impossible. So, don't you think that there's... that, that uh, as a father... I think about the reality that no child could grow up in my home and not share or partake in the blessing of the Holy Spirit. It would be impossible. So it would be very easy for them to be deceived into thinking that they're genuinely following Jesus because the Spirit of God is always activated in my home all the time. God's doing all sorts of amazing things in and through my family and in my home. But that doesn't mean that you're saved because you're sharing in that. It means that you live under the same roof with two people that are activated in it. And more than that, what about the people who come to church in a church like this? See, if you come to church in a church like this, 
It would be very easy to get confused and think the Spirit of God is working in your life when in reality the Spirit of God is working around you and all the lives around you. And what you're seeing and sensing and feeling is God's activity because it's riddled with people who are walking in the power of the Spirit. Doesn't mean it's you. You share in it. That's not being filled with, indwelt by, baptized in submersed in. There's a difference. And then finally, it says to restore them again to repentance, which is troubling for many people because they think, wow. So if to be restored again to repentance must mean that they at one point repented. Well, if you consider Judas repenting, You see, not all sorrow for sin leads to salvation. Now, isn't the Bible clear about this? 2 Corinthians 7 says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereby or whereas worldly grief produces death. Matthew chapter 27, Then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned and betrayed innocent blood. Not all sorrow for sin is repentance. Repentance is, we, we dealt with this this morning, is letting go of one thing and grabbing hold of another thing. Now, here's my question, and then I'm moving on. Because if you email me, I'm going to be frustrated. You email me, I want you to show me where Judas grabbed a hold of something, okay? That's what I'm, the only thing he grabbed a hold of was a rope around his neck. What did he grab a hold of? Nothing. Oh, he let go of something, but so does everyone else who grabs something hot and gets burned by it. You got to grab hold. You let go, you grab hold. You move, you walk in a new direction, you turn. So here's a conclusion. This passage was not at all, not in any way, shape, or form, is it intended to cause worry or doubt in the hearts of God's people. That's not the intention. And the reason that it does is because so many times we have been wrongly instructed or allowed ourselves to be misguided we've allowed people's interpretations of their experiences to trump what scripture says i don't i i don't in my mind i am a hundred percent convinced now pastor matt may disagree with this i don't know pastor ray may disagree with this i don't know but i'm a hundred percent convinced that when the author of Hebrews, when the church read Hebrews 6, this didn't cause them any problem whatsoever. They didn't even flinch because they, they understood it for what it's intended. But in our culture, Satan just has a field day with it. It's not intended to make you worry or doubt. But it's intended as a warning to those who have become comfortable 
in a surface familiarity with the Christian faith while keeping Christ at arm's length. Didn't I say this morning that there are people who are in church for the express reason of avoiding surrender to Christ? They come to church because they find comfort in proximity. And so, so long as they're not the people that outright reject or don't, whatever. And, and here's the thing. If just ask yourself, the person who is sitting in church this morning and who's using church attendance to earn the favor of God in their own mind... Where I don't know them, but I already, you know and I know, how did they grow up? They grew up in a family where, by golly, you're going to church, right? My family. But ain't nobody having a conversation on Sunday morning about what we're going to do. Never happened. If it's Sunday, you better be at the door. We're rolling, right? And so it is built into them, so they come to church thinking that coming to church makes them okay. So we have to be careful. It's an appeal to those who have grown in their understanding of Christianity and have experienced great blessings through His church and yet do not trust and treasure Jesus above all. So when, you, when you're concerned about your salvation, a good place to start is to be honest. Look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, who do I think about when I can think about anything? What do I talk about when I can talk about anything? Have you ever noticed that there's people in proximity to church community and when you bring up a spiritual conversation, they change the subject or they have to leave the room for some reason? It's a problem. Do they, do they cherish Jesus above all else? It wouldn't appear that way to me. Priorities. Your priorities are going to tell me a lot more about who you truly are than any story you tell me about yourself. You're going to learn more about me by watching than you are by listening. But for the saved, listen. There's really no more God can do than He's already done. Drive your heart into the Word of God and be reminded... No one wants you to know and be secure more than the Lord. He's the one that says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them from my hand. 
For I am sure that neither life or death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, or powers, no height, no depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. For if God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 20 says, but these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might in that have life in his name. Acts 16 says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Romans 10 says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, nor works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. 1 John 4 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him, and he in God. And 1 John 5 says these things, I have written unto you that, Believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. 